to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And what better time to discuss uh, one of the great writers of the 20th century, arguably also one of those types of monsters that Gramsci had in mind, uh, and a guy who tried to uh, get inside his head a little and decided he didn't like it. Uh, this is Reading in the Time of Monsters, episode 13, uh, where we'll be discussing the work and legacy of Louis Ferdinand Celine, a.k.a. Ferdinand Destouche, uh, one of the great writers of the 20th century, probably uh, the great French writer uh, with some other candidates, obviously, in the mix as well, but Celine deserves to be in there, and his relationship with one Milton Hendis. Uh, and joining me today is my good friend, Drew. Uh, Drew, I met many years ago at a grad school class, uh, and we, we hit it off and became fast friends. Drew has stuck it out in the academy. He is a uh, historian of uh, French and German history. At uh, He's currently teaching at Pitt Bradford, uh, we've done a lot together. We've done a lot of, uh, collaboration intellectually in an informal way, as well as organizing together. We've both been on the lines trying to fight for, for socialism, trying to, uh, organize unions, all that good stuff. So Drew, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Peter. Uh, is there any other, is there any introductory stuff I missed there? No, I mean, we'll get into it as we get into the story. It's true, um, it's true, we will. It's a story that I go back a little ways with, and we yes. come at it from different angles, from you, it's from true. Celine knowledge, and Celine, I could say fandom in a complicated way. Yeah. Um, and, and I from uh, sort of my my chance encounter with, with Hindus. So, That's um, right. Yeah, I was at Brandeis University at the time, uh, Peter was at BC, and we took mm-hmm. a consortium course together, and the rest is history but yes uh, back in the uh, academic union space again i know that's right both of us are uh in one way or another uh so uh but before we dive into Celine and hendis uh in keeping with this podcast ethos and brief self-crit about what i uh could have done better with the last pod uh some of you noticed that there was a glitch uh, that came from some efforts at audio editing. I think I am getting somewhat better from like, you know, the standing start of zero that I was at. Uh, but I messed up an attempt to edit part of the last podcast. There was a glitch. I had to re-release it. Uh, I believe it might have been you who first noticed it, Drew, actually. Uh, but yeah, I, got, I think so. Yep, I did some re-editing and it came out pretty good in the end. Uh, I also, you know... There's plenty of other stuff I could have said. Also, I could have just not done the whole episode because honestly, the whole thing with the Know Your Enemy guys and uh, fascism and anti-fascism really does leave a bad taste in my mouth, less because the idea of people disagreeing with anti-fascism bothers me. It doesn't really. I understand that different people are going to have different approaches, but just the reflexive disdain for it on the part of supposed leftists you know it's it's uncomfortable and especially when you pair that with this seemingly gormless acceptance of the performance and to my mind a very shabby performance of erudition and earnestness on the part of someone like nate hawkman that they fell for that 
can't admit they fell for it and won't take on board intellectual perspectives that might help them not fall for it in the future. But, you know, I'm done with that. I'm not, I'm just leaving those guys alone, uh, you know, to the extent that they ever noticed me, which was very minimal. Uh, so moving onward and upward, uh, into very few people have ever looked at the work of Louis Ferdinand Celine and said, okay, that's, let's move upward to that. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that the situation that we find ourselves in uh, with the relationship between liberals and uh, scheming uh, crypto fascist conservatives who, who gold them into platforming them is as dark as where we will bring this story to. Right, because who is Celine? Uh, he was uh, a writer active in France uh, from the 30s to the very early 60s. Uh, he wrote about a dozen novels. He was considered, in many respects, uh, almost the almost a French answer to a James Joyce in terms of the ways he pushed the language into this uh, dreamlike approximation of uh, actual speech, the speech of of the people of the streets of Paris uh, and his uh, really, I don't know if fearless is the right word for it, but his uh, disregard for anything other than getting across feeling in the most direct and deliverable uh, way possible and, and accurate to his understanding of how those feelings uh, worked and how what those feelings were like. And we'll talk more about specifics later on. Another part of Celine's legacy is uh, he was he was a real piece of shit. He was a bad guy. Um, and we're going to get into here the separating the art from the artist question. Are we going to take which of the two paths, Drew, of, of the millennial reader must we take? Must we separate the art from the artist uh, and, and give Selena a pass for, uh, in this case, uh, rampant rancid anti-semitism and uh collaboration with the nazis when they uh conquered france or or are we going to moralize and just kick him out of the kick him out of the boat kick him out of the can and never never speak his name again what do you think those are literally the only two choices i can't i can't think right? of any other approach what else um, are we to do I have, I have, a, there's a little, there's a little guy standing on my shoulder and he's, he's whispering something. And I think it sounds kind of like historicized, but I don't, I don't know what that means. Yeah. What, what, what kind of word is that? What that would imply. Well, yeah. anyway, as, as our sarcasm makes clear, we're going to try another approach, right? We're going to try to bring historical nuance uh, and historicization, as the little man on Drew's shoulder put it, to the case of Ferdinand Destouche a.k.a. Louis Ferdinand Celine. Oftentimes, when people say nuance, what they mean is basically that pass, the separate the art from the artist pass. That's not what we mean. What we mean is try to understand what made Celine great, what made him awful, how they interrelated, how he was a product of his time and place, but also broke from it in certain ways, 
what it all means for us now. Uh, and very quickly, I'm going to sort of give you some basic biographical facts. Uh, Destouche uh, was born in 1894 to a middle-class family uh, and lived most of his younger life in Paris, as well as much of his older life, too. Uh, sort of a middle-class family. Uh, he later, in sort of work that in some ways kind of uh, resembled the autofiction that would become so popular in the early 21st century, he implied that he was raised more under worse financial circumstances than he actually was. But a middle-class family... Uh, he joined the army as a young man, was in a cavalry unit. He was wounded early on in World War I. He claimed at one point that he was trepined, that he had been shot through the head and he needed a trepanning. There's no record of that. We do know he was wounded, I think, in the arm. Uh, that got him out of World War I. He spent time in various uh, parts of uh, France and England, uh, which made pretty big impressions on him. And he eventually became a medical doctor. That was his field before he ever became a writer. He became he published his first novel in 1932. So by that time, he would have been about 37, 38. So for much of his so for the beginning of his adult life, he was a soldier and then a medical doctor. He also worked as a sort of health health reporter for the League of Nations. The League of Nations sent him to numerous places around the world, including uh, colonial Africa and the United States, to report on public health measures. He started writing while working for the League. After a few false starts, he published his first novel, Journey to the End of the Night, in 1932. And Journey to the End of the Night proved to be a big hit in both critical and popular senses of the word. Uh, though in France in the 30s, there was uh, arguably less of a divide than you would see in the United States, both at the time and since. Uh, he was praised by critics across the increasingly overheated ideological divides in French literature, uh, with both right and left complimenting him, including in the case of the latter, Leon Trotsky. Uh, like I said, he was seen as one of the great forces of French literary modernism. In particular, there was a seen to be a lack of pretense to what he did in his efforts to capture everyday speech and a sort of stream of consciousness and people's uh, people's cynical attitudes, you could say. Uh, Celine depicted his own life and the life of people around him, not necessarily accurately, but with the emotions and particularly the misanthropy and the cynicism turned up. So Journey to the End of the Night uh, discusses Celine's time in the war and then his travels uh, on the way uh, doing reporting for the League all over the place. And wherever he goes, he finds ill health, which is related to dishonesty, uh, pretense, uh, sheer hatred for its own sake. These were the things that Celine was the writer of. And his subsequent novels got further and further into this topic 
and general set of themes and also drew from his autobiographical experience and developed his style further. Uh, these books include uh, Death on the Installment Plan, uh, which is one of my favorites. But here, um, I'm going to give a quote from uh, from Journey at the End of the Night, and we'll compare it later on with a quote from one of his later books to kind of give you an idea of what he was doing. So this is uh, Bardamu, who was Celine's literary stand-in. Bardamu uh, talking about his work as a doctor in a clinic in an uh, industrial slum in Paris, which Celine also practiced similar medicine. When you have no money to offer the poor, you'd better keep your trap shut. If you talk to them about anything but money, you'll almost always be deceiving them, lying. It's easy to amuse the rich. All you need, for instance, is mirrors for them to see themselves in, because in the whole world, there's nothing better to look at than the rich. To keep the rich cheerful, all you've got to do is move them up a notch in the Legion of Honor every 10 years, like a sagging tit. That'll keep them busy for another 10 years. My patients were poor and selfish. They were materialists, shrunk to the measure of their sordid hope that positive sputum mixed with blood would get them a pension. Nothing else meant a thing to them. So this wasn't the sort of sentimentality you might see directed to the poor and the working class uh, by elements of literary French society. It also wasn't characteristic of how the French literary right wrote or thought in that it was not very classical French and not very classical subjects. Now, we're going to get more into the specifics of how Celine got into politics, his cynicism and his scabrousness, you would figure, would insulate him to a certain degree. And he, at most points in his life, insisted he didn't care a thing for politics, that all politicians were liars and cheats. He only cared about writing. Uh, but as we'll see, he got himself involved in the politics of the era, and particularly in anti-Semitism and fascism. Uh, Drew is going to talk some about the forms his anti-Semitism took, but it's worth noting here that Celine's fascism was unusual in that there was many of the tropes of decay that you see in fascist ideology and fascist writing, the idea that we have lost a world of values to the extent that Celine was ever sentimental about anything. It was usually about some lost set of values that belonged either to his childhood or to his ancestors when people were more honest and less uh, hateful, essentially. He, as is usually the case with sentimentality, not very specific about when this was supposed to be, uh, but he focused on the negative side of it we'll say, the negative end of fascism, the idea that there were these infecting bodies on uh, the body of France that needed to be purified, burnt away. Uh, we'll see who he thought those bodies were as we continue uh, our discussion. But it was a fascism that lacked supermen. It was a fascism that lacked a uh, real idea of what victory would look like or 
even real sympathy with uh, the people attempting to be this kind of new fascist man that Hitler and Mussolini and the rest promised. Celine saw that as so much pretense, right? He saw that as the type of thing that Germans believe in, you know, uh, a little hard to credit. Uh, Celine lived through most of World War II in Paris. He did not particular, he was not particularly active in any of the fascist political parties, though he did support uh, some of them and some of their efforts, including the uh, Legion of French Volunteers that went to go fight the anti-Bolshevik crusade, so to speak, in the East with the Germans. Uh, he had, the Germans did not see him as a particularly useful ally in Paris or in France. They didn't particularly approve of his writing style. They didn't particularly uh, like his attitudes towards Germany and Germans, which was not universally positive. And they didn't like his variation on fascism. When the allies approached, landed in France and started approaching Paris. Céline fled with numerous other collaborators uh, to Germany, uh, specifically to Sigmaringen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Drew. It was Sigmaringen. Sigmaringen. Sigmaringen Castle, which was for a little while the headquarters of the remnants of the French collaboration regime. He then fled Sigmaringen for Denmark, where he lived for about five years, uh, about a year and a half of those in prison uh, at the behest of the liberated French government, uh, before returning to France and dying in, I believe, 1960 or 1961. Either way, uh, his wartime experience, in particular, uh, his, his flight, his flight from Paris that ended in Denmark, uh, led to the production of his wartime trilogy, which I would recommend highly for people who like this sort of literature and have the stomach for it. Uh, those novels in English translation are Castle to Castle, North, and Rigadoon. And to give you a little idea of how Celine's writing style developed and also how uh, his concerns, what, what, what his concerns were uh, during the war, I'm going to uh, read to you from the second page uh, of Castle to Castle, the first book in his trilogy recording his flight from France. So this is right at the beginning, right as he's leaving. Everything was stolen from me in Montmartre. Everything. On the Rue Girardon. I repeat. I can't repeat it enough. People pretend not to hear the exact things they need to hear. Though I've said it plainly enough, the works. Somebody, liberators, avengers, broke into my place and carried everything off to the flea market. They sold it all. I'm not exaggerating. I've got proof, witnesses, names, all my books and instruments, my furniture, my manuscripts, the whole shebang. I didn't find one thing, not a handkerchief, not a chair. They'd sold even the walls, the apartment, everything. Put it all in their pockets, and there you have it. Oh, I know what you think. It's only natural. I can hear you. 
that such things can never happen to you, that you've taken your precautions, that you're as good a communist as any millionaire, as good a Pujadist as Pujad, as Russian as a dressing, more American than Buffalo, hand in glove with everything that counts, lodge, sell, sacristy, the law, the champion new style Vrenchman, the historical trend runs straight through your asshole, honorary brother, certainly, executioner's helper, we'll see, guillotine liquor, Oh, well. Uh, so that's what Celine was thinking about, uh, both as he launched himself across Europe uh, in the baggage train, so to speak, of a dying Nazism. And uh, years later, as he was thinking about it, as he was writing these books in Denmark and then later on in France when he returned. Uh, he was thinking about the stuff in his apartment in Montmartre. He was thinking about how uh, these... Uh, liberationists, you know, the resistance types, some of whom probably were uh, fair weather resistance, let us say, uh, looting his apartment, taking away his furniture and selling it. Uh, that's what he thought of. He didn't think about, uh, you know, the supposed superiority of the French nation or of the Aryans. He also didn't think about the hundreds of thousands of Jews uh, that were deported from France. He didn't think about, uh, you know, the his countrymen who were in some cases starving, uh, not not in that instance anyway. And he always thought about his bitterness towards uh, the perceived or real hypocrisy of kind of the good guys, right? The the people who, oh, uh, the people who uh, supposedly. Uh, represented the good but were really just as scummy as everyone else uh so drew is that you typing to say it was seventy-five thousand jews <laughs> it was indeed roughly seventy-five thousand. okay so uh i'll just say it uh yeah yeah seventy-five thousand jews yes sorry i figured it was hundreds of thousands i don't know where i got that from <laughs> uh anyway so that's celine um and we could talk we'll talk more about him but we also want to talk about the other character in this story, Milton Hindus. And who is that? So Milton Hindus, uh, in a way, um, you could say that part of the reason anyone knows who he is um, is because he knew Celine. Um, and I think Celine, maybe that's a little too flattering. And I think Celine would really enjoy that uh, characterization. <laughs> that's certainly how, how, how Celine felt about it. Mm. Um, but Milton Hindus was a, a literary critic. Um, he was a professor. He he was uh, he studied at City College and what's now the City University of New York, um, which was at the time sort of the center of the world for sort of a certain kind of American Jewish intellectualism, um, particularly around literary circles. Um, he claimed at one point in his memoir, uh, unpublished, largely unpublished memoir, um, that he had been the first Trotskyist. Um, at City College, which if you know a little bit of City College's role in the development, not only of uh, sort of American Trotskyism and communism, but also of American neoconservatism, yeah. <laughs> um, is, is a funny thing to claim, but maybe it's true, right? Um, in presenting himself as something of an intellectual renegade or a, or a little bit of a free thinker. Um, but he did spend a brief period in his youth uh, in, the, in the late 30s, maybe 19... 36 to 39 as one or another kind of radical leftist and sort of first in the communist party um, and then as a Trotskyist, um, but later broke very hard with leftism and ended his life um, as a conservative. Um, 
But uh, in any case, Hindis was born in 1916 in the Bronx uh, in New York City. And he was educated at City College. He did a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Science there um, in 1936 and 38. Um, and he taught um, briefly at, uh, so he pursued a doctorate but never completed it, first at the University uh, at Columbia University and then at the University of Chicago. Um, and he also taught um, at Hunter College and at uh, the uh, New School for Social Research, actually. Uh, briefly. Uh, in 1946, he left there. He went to the University of Chicago for about two years. Um, and eventually, uh, in 1948, he joined a new secular Jewish-sponsored university in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, Brandeis University, as one of its original 13 faculty. Um, so that's a little bit about Hindus's sort of career. Um, I'll say a little bit about what his outlook was. He was fascinated by literary modernism, uh, whether in the American or French tradition, and he did uh, sort of move between the two. He was part of a transatlantic network of writers and critics uh, who were invested in promoting the work of people like Joyce, um, but also of people like Henry Miller um, and William Carlos Williams. And if you read through his, his uh, um, he had a very uh, uh, illustrious selection of regular correspondence uh, in this sort of literary modernist movement, broadly speaking. Big fan of Celine um, from fairly early on, sometime in the 30s, he reads Celine's work. Um, and eventually, uh, later on, sometime in the 40s, uh, begins a correspondence with him. And we'll come to that in a moment. Um, so Hindus' interest in Celine seems to first and foremost come from his intellectual interest in uh, this new literature that is mm, naturalist, but not in the 19th century sense. And this is yeah. where I, I will hit the limits of my uh, knowledge of, of, of the formal language of literary criticism. Uh, yeah. But my sense is that the things that like someone like Henry Miller had in common, or even sort of late D.H. Lawrence, was that they're thinking of Lady Chatterley's lover, right? These are people yeah. who are willing to break with certain elements of convention in a provocative way convention, both moral convention and stylistic convention. Right. Uh, this with Celine very clearly. Did you want to jump in there? Yeah. So with naturalism, uh, the the big figures, you know, in America, it would be people like Dreiser. But uh, he was, at the end of the day, a uh, uh, he worshipped at the altar of Emile Zola, uh, who was one of the major French writers of his time the great naturalist writer his naturalism you could you could say it's almost a testament to the power of later generations of writers like celine and miller and whoever came after then when we think naturalism we don't think of something like what zola had in mind necessarily because yes zola was considered scandalous at the time because he broke with victorian tradition uh of uh you know, relating what his care he related what his characters did and the their lives to a combination of both biological and heredity factors. So his major his magnum opus of his life was a twenty novel series about a two group two conjoined families, the Rougeons and the Macarts, uh, and it's actually helpful to have the 
chart of who's related to whom if you're reading those books, not just for plot purposes, but because Zola understood heredity across these families, the generations, as central to what he was studying, but also social forces, uh, capitalism, um, you know, uh, government corruption. Zola was kind of a left Republican. He was well known for taking a stand in the Dreyfus affair, uh, one of the first French celebrities to stand up for Alfred Dreyfus, who had been uh, railroaded uh, by the French government. Uh, and yeah, so that was that was sort of Zola's take on it. But later naturalists kind of took what Zola was doing, trying to uh, depict the nature as opposed to the ideal uh, or an idealized version of society. They took that and they ran with it much further than Zola would go, right? You didn't really get uh, sex in Zola. You didn't get that much in the way of dirty language, certainly as we would understand it. Uh, and you didn't get the kind of experimentation to make the natural sound more natural that you eventually get in modern, at least parts of modernism. So that's how I'd, that's how I'd sum that up. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And it, it's, it's funny you mentioned Dreiser because uh, at one point, Celine accuses uh, Hindus of, of admiring Dreiser yeah. uh, as a sort of a criticism in, in, in their and, conversations. But, and Celine um, did not admire uh, Zola. No, no. And not, not least because they would have found each other, uh, each other on opposite sides of the Dreyfus issue, but yes, <laughs> that's what come to. Yes. Um, and I, you know, it's it's a more of a laugh of discomfort than anything else. But mm. um, so uh, so yeah, so so Hindus is you know he's sort of making his bones as a critic and as a, a scholar at this time, um, and uh, but he's also changing as a person. I think part of what's interesting about him, and and I know you read uh, Frederic Vitu's. Uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, biography of uh, Celine in, in preparation for this, but there hasn't really been a good biography of, of Hindus. Hmm. Um, and what I know about him, I'll, I'll say more about in a second, um, comes from my time uh, at Brandeis University. And when I was a graduate student there, I worked in the university archives and university archives hold all the faculty papers from previous generations of faculty. And so Hindus' papers were being combed over by myself and one other graduate student. That graduate student left. And I was sort of in charge of these papers. I heard there was an interesting story in there uh, with contemporary, well, then contemporary letters um, involving this Van Celine, who I'd never heard of before. Um, so I was just working, you know, at a, a part time sort of uh, a side hustle, more or less, uh, in this archive. Um, started going through this stuff and I eventually wrote some papers, ne never anything that I published, but um, using some of these sources. Um, but uh, Hindus is coming to Brandeis, I'll actually come back around to later in this podcast, because I think it's relevant to what happens after the whole Selene situation. Um, but something that's interesting about Hindus beyond the Selene story is that he was not only drawn to these literary modernists, he was drawn to the um, moral transgression side. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he was drawn to writers like uh, French writer André Guide, who mm -hmm. was among other things, uh, an openly gay writer at a time when that was uncommon um, and went in and out of jail for it at various times. Um, and he also um, was drawn to another man, Samuel Roth, 
who I'll say more about, because it's eventually going to be Samuel Roth who publishes The Crippled Giant, the book that he writes about his meetings with Celine. Um, in any case, he's going through changes in who he is and how he sees the world in the 30s um, as he finishes graduate school, well, he finishes his master's, starts teaching. Um, he makes his final break, he says, with communism in 1939 over the Soviet invasion of Finland, which he considers to be uh, cowardly and um, and sort of uh, bullying um, and doesn't see as in line with his, uh, I guess, his, I don't know, uh, the sensibilities, I guess. Um, and, and by then he's, uh, he's sort of, he can't associate himself with the movement at all anymore. And he's looking for something else. Now, Hindus is of Jewish descent, as I sort of mentioned, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish, uh, I think mostly Polish. Um, and uh, he is, um, he would always characterize himself as sort of, he had become sort of, he never became secularist really, um, but he saw the communism sort of as filling the void left by religion. Uh, as a young person, he had been very devout, sort of, a, sort of like a, almost like a mystic, um, as a as a young as a sort of a young boy and as a teenager. And then when he broke with that, he he would narrate in this essay politics that he published at one point. He narrates this as sort of a, a substitute ersatz religion for him. Um, so. Uh, he's going through other changes where he's starting to think again about what it means to be Jewish right around this time, um, particularly uh, with the events of World War II. Um, he is exempted from service in World War II because of some unspecified health issue. Um, and so he doesn't he doesn't serve. Um, but obviously he knows about what's going on. He hears about what's happening to European to the European Jewish population. Um, at the hands of the Nazis, and there are many collaborators in many different countries. Um, and um, I think that also has something to do with him sort of reconsidering, well, maybe I want to be more actively or self-consciously Jewish, whatever that's going to end up meaning to him. Uh, and so that also, of course, starts to color some of how he starts to think about some of these writers that he had re probably thought of more as interesting uh, for purely literary reasons at one time. Um, and, uh, um, you know, when we come into uh, Celine's anti-Semitism um, in a little bit, uh, actually, maybe we'll, we'll come to it next uh, okay. when I finish talking about Hindus, um, we'll see uh, some of the things that he's having to, Hindus is having to wrestle with uh, as he decides um, how to go forward as a scholar of this kind of uh, transgressive literature. Right. Um, do you want to jump in on anything I said there? Uh, no, no, it's it's good. I mean, you know, Celine transgressive is the right word for it. He transgressed on boundaries of taste. He transgressed on the conventions of the French language, which for a little while, again, did kind of separate him from the French literary right. Uh, he, you know, uh, he lived a reasonably a, a somewhat scandalous life for a. Uh, even by literary French standards, he had a wife who he never uh, really bothered to divorce, but he lived separate from them and carried on, you know, uh, drinking and sexual adventures in Montmartre. Uh, or maybe they eventually divorced. I, I can't quite remember. Uh, he took up with a dancer. He was a great enthusiast for ballet and dance uh, and loved his dancing girls. Uh, and he took up with one who actually stayed with for quite some time for the rest of his life. Uh, including fleeing across Europe with him. But 
among the transgressions that Celine chose uh, was one that in 1930s France, I mean, it wasn't unknown by any stretch of the measure, uh, and there were whole portions of society that approved of this attitude. But I do think there was a transgressive element to his choice of anti-Semitism, right? It had been there from the beginnings of his writing career, though you really don't see that much of it in his first couple of novels. He wrote some plays that had some anti-Semitic overtones. His boss at the League of Nations was a famous uh, Jewish doctor uh, who was actually quite kind to Celine in most respects. And Celine, uh, you know, worked reasonably well with him, but he clearly resented him. Uh, there, there's a long French tradition of anti-Semitism, particularly uh, a strain that's associated with the kind of middle-class urban milieu that Celine came from, shopkeepers, artisans, uh, other sort of small urban, notionally independent producers. I say notional because most of them depended on one way or another on larger suppliers or creditors or both. And as capitalism began to not work out quite so well for that class, many of them sought out a scapegoat and were familiar with the scapegoat that usually gets chosen. Uh, in this case, perhaps ironically, in the country that first, uh, in continental Europe, that first freed Jews from formal persecution. There were no more laws uh, against the Jews after the French Revolution, but anti-Semitism in France uh, has continued, obviously, and Celine got, uh, along with incorporating some anti-Semitic material in his fiction, uh, wrote a few book-length pamphlets dedicated to them. Yeah, so so maybe this is a good chance to just take a little step back and say something about French anti-Semitism. I agree that there is sort of this, uh, the, the, the French uh, right in the early 20th century is very much associated with this kind of shopkeeper personage. And also, I mean, if you look forward to the 50s with uh, Pujad, who he mentioned in, in that piece, you, you mentioned with Pujadism and the emergence of the new sort of uh, French right populism also, you know, kind of takes on that that sort of small producer kind of identity. Um, there, there are some interesting features that we'll notice, um, you know, once again, for people who have the stomach to look closely at this sort of issue, which I think uh, as a historian of modern uh, Europe or really modern anywhere, uh, one has to do quite a bit of that. Um, you notice some peculiar features of French anti-Semitism, which I think are sometimes misunderstood when people talk about Celine and the Celine and Hindus situation. And we can come back to it, but it's very important that in 1936, France get its, gets its first Jewish prime minister, a man named Léon Blum. Um, Léon Blum is the uh, head of the Socialist Party of the, of the SFIO, the Section Française de l'International. Uh, Ouvrière, the, the Workers International, so French section of the Workers International. So this is sort of the reformist uh, socialist party as distinguished from the French Communist Party. Um, but he actually comes to power in a coalition with the uh, Popular Front. And the Popular Front also includes the communists, includes sort of left liberals and kind of the center left and sort of the independent, uh, what do you call them, independent Republican parties as well. It's a pretty crushing electoral victory. 
Um, and I think this is one of the things we want to understand, in addition to this sort of uh, peculiar French anti-Semitism, which we'll come back to, I think, we better talk about in a minute, um, as a moment for uh, Celine's sort of, I don't know if it's a conversion, mm. he may have held these views all along, but his this decision to break his silence, I guess, mm. about his feelings about, um, and not about the Jews, or not only about like Jewish people in general, but about uh France's supposed beholdenness or even a special or unique beholdenness to yes. uh, world Jewry. Yes. Uh, um, so maybe I'll run real quick through his anti-Semitic so-called pamphlets, although some of them are almost book length. Yeah, oh, yeah. Instead. Um, so uh, it, there are a series of them, and I, I won't describe them all in depth, but just to give you an idea of the evolution of his views or, or whether it's an evolution of his views or just sort of a reactive continue like like oh can he just continues to publish these things um so in 1937 he publishes uh it's translated to english as a trifles for a massacre and this is the first one of his uh um anti-semitic works uh, that really focuses on anti-semitism there had been anti-semitic caricatures in earlier works of his in fact he might have written uh bagatelle pour uh une massacre um, as a response to that criticism of those earlier caricatures. Uh-huh. Um, but in any case, um, uh, he identifies uh, the sort of Jewish conspiracy as sort of running everything in a traditional political anti-Semitism sort of way. He says, quote, uh, the world is a corporation, a trust in which the Jews own all of the shares. The trust has subsidiaries, communism, monarchism, democracy, and maybe even fascism, unquote. So there's nothing outside of this Hmm. conspiracy uh, from this perspective. Um, And whether he means that this is especially true in France, it seems like he thinks this is especially true in France. Um, At one point um, in his conversations with Hindus, they talk about uh, where Celine's anti-Semitism comes from because he never really denied that he was an anti-Semite. and he denied having read um, uh, the the author of a, a Grumont, the author of of a book, uh, Edouard Grumont, I think it is, um, the author of a book called "A Jewish France, La France Juive," um, which was very influential on French anti-Semitism. Whether he read Drumont or not, his his thought shows the clear influence of Drumont because he identifies France as being sort of uh, penetrated by. Uh, and and saturated with Jewish influence, especially Mm -hmm. its uh, bourgeois class, especially Mm -hmm. sort of the middle and upper uh, business classes um, and its culture, its culture as being under Jewish influence, all of its institutions as being infiltrated, right? To the point where it almost feels like there's nothing to save. And maybe this relates back to this sort of fascism without heroes uh, vision. Mm. Right? What, what is there, what would victory even look like uh, for, for his outlook? And yet he does express around this time in 37, 38, uh, particularly in 1938, in his second um, anti-Jewish pamphlet, um, The School for Corpses, uh, L'école des cadavres. Um, he um, he he uh, argues that only an alliance between France and Germany can mm-hmm. stave off another world war. Yes, and, and, and sort of and sort of proposes basically like a Franco-German uh, axis almost. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, there's certainly sympathy there. Yeah. Yeah. It was Celine's to the extent that Celine had kind of an in with the French public for his ideas, it was somewhat following in the footsteps of people like Drumont, 
and other French anti-Semite, political anti-Semites. But again, he he didn't have that much pre-existing connection with them. He his kind of angle of attack was through the mass disgust at the war, World War One, and anything that smacked of a return to war, right? This is where the phrase peace at any price comes from. Uh, this is how you get pacifists who aren't like what we think of as pacifists today, uh, who are, you know, uh, who, who want to see a pacifist world so much as people who are just so shattered by the experience of war that anyone who suggests that anything might be worth fighting for, uh, there must be something wrong with them which is an understandable position for a country that had just lost as much as France had lost uh, in a war that seemed as purposeless as World War I, but obviously it doesn't always lead to good ends, as we'll see. Absolutely. Um, in, in The School for Corpses in 1938, um, he really uh, hammers this idea that um, it's not just supposedly this sort of figural Jew, as you would say, in sort of the study of anti-Semitism, not any specific Jewish person, but this sort of idea of the Jews as as like a, an entity out there, right? <laughs> Manipulating events. It's not just them who, who supposedly want a war. It's all of these puppets, right? Uh, whether it be, as he said before, the communists, the monarchists, the whoever, right? They're all, mm -hmm. they're all, um, and he says uh, here of, of the Democrats, of people who are in favor of democracy. Let's get to the bottom line. The Democrats want the war. The Democrats, it's funny just to read this, you know, in, in today's. Right. Um, <laughs> but he means, you know, generally people, small b Democrats. Yeah. Um, the Democrats have finally got their war. Democracy equals a mass of domesticated, divided, muffled people who've been reduced to vinegar and held at ransom. They've been turned into dimwits by the Jews. They've been completely butchered, hypnotized and depersonalized brainwashed into absurd hatred and fratricide. So here he's blaming this Jewish influence for the march toward war. And he actually explicitly proposes an alliance between France and Germany to avoid it. And his sort of, his, his characterization of this, of this um, all like ever present, uh, omnipresent uh, Jewish manipulation um, has other influences as well. If you're familiar at all with Charles uh, Maurras, who was, uh, among other things, the founder of one of France's sort of first proto-fascist movements, the Action mm -hmm. Française, or French Action, this kind of ultra-Catholic uh, street fighting league. Um, but he was also a, a sort of neo-romantic writer. Um, and Maurras had wrote um, in a very famous piece uh, in the in the early 30s, uh, reflecting back on his career as an anti-Dreyfusard and sort of mm -hmm. a major uh, f a figure of the anti-Semitic right in France. Um, he reflects back and says, um, uh, references another person, Bernard Lazar, who's actually a French Jewish writer who wrote the first real book in the 1890s about anti-Semitism as a phenomenon. Um, and he, he was called anti-Semitism, it's uh, origins and something like that. But in any case, um, so Maurras referenced this, takes a quotation from Lazar out of context where Lazar says uh, to something to the effect that Jews are uh, revolutionaries with regard to other people and conservatives as regard to themselves. And so uh, that as regards themselves, which is to say that they're sort of, uh, they will sort of chaos for the rest of the world, mm -hmm. uh, but without being willing to change. And it's, you know, it's, there's a sort of, there's a danger in trying to assign too much coherence to these ideas. 
Yes. So I, actually, I would say that that Celine's own interpretation, though he references these ideas too, uh, is not rooted in intellectualism. Mm. He doesn't. He doesn't have. I don't think. Right. No. <laughs> He'll disagree, but I don't think that he intellectualizes his anti-Semitism. But he. It's clear that he's familiar with these arguments. Yes. That have, they're out there. I think no, it's I, more it's a milieu than anything. Right. Else. I I agree completely because as Celine himself would have been the first to tell you, he was a writer who wrote to the feelings who tried to depict feelings and to communicate feeling, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, and yeah, I think even just even just looking at the quotes here and the way he talks about them, he he does con much more than make an argument. He conjures up a feeling, this kind of sweaty, like we're, you know, us little guys are all getting screwed over by the big guys. And guess what the big guys all have in common? They're they're outsider. They're not like us. They're weird. Uh, and on top of that, they get to be in charge of us and puppet master everyone else, right? But who's looking out for you, as uh, certain right wing figures in the U.S. like to say? Uh, who, who's looking out for for the little guy, the real Frenchman, uh, the the lower middle class that made up? sort of the real France as far as Celine was concerned. Uh, though also he, he would also count, you know, rural folk among among whom he would uh, rather cut his own arm off than spend a week. But uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. He's, he's trying to get a feeling across. And to a certain extent, I think that makes it what he was doing more, you know, uh, potentially potent than intellectual argument. Because intellectual argument was never anti-Semitism strong suit. No, and the, and the potency of his of his prose mm -hmm. is a lot of the right comes from a lot of the same places. The potency of anti-Semitism is, insofar as it's effective rhetorically, it's effective for many of the same reasons that his novels are effective. Yes, um, un unfortunately, and so um, and. You know, this actually gets us into the question of Celine and fascism, because mm -hmm. um, I think uh, Vitu is very, uh, you know, the author of the, one of the big biographies of him is is sort of um, sort of shies away from the idea that, that Celine should be like considered to have been a fascist or even really collaborator. And I, I don't think I, I agree fully mm -hmm. with Vitu, but I think it's good to kind of flag like what might be fascist about um about Celine's thinking, because I think there is something there. Um, and one of them, one piece is maybe, uh, in a way, his his career, we can come back to this later, but mm -hmm. in a way, his career uh, actually really mirrors a little bit that, well, in some ways, his outlook mirrors that of, of um, Pierre Laval, who, for, mm -hmm. who's a personal physician he serves as briefly during mm -hmm. World War II. But um, in that, he is does seem to start out as being anti-war and then mm -hmm. come to other positions and right. sympathy with national socialism through it. But um, what we can see in uh, his next anti-Semitic pamphlet, the third and last one, which he writes in 1940 and publishes during the German occupation of France in 1941, um, uh, Les Beaux Drapes, or a, a sort of a fine mess, it's, 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 it's the sort of idiomatic translation. Um, so Les Beaux Drapes looks at um, his uh, it looks sort of back at his career of pamphleteering um, and sort of um, from the perspective of now France having been defeated and overrun. Um, and something that scholars have pointed to in this is that 
Celine never makes really direct political claims or statements mm-hmm. about like what he'd like the world to be like. Mm-hmm. This is the place he seems to almost be proposing a political program, but I, I think that it would be wrong to think that that's what he's doing. Um, but what he says, here's, here's a quotation to, to give you a sense. So once again, he's talking about the Jews and how he says the Jew, uh, this is 1941, the Jew wants everything that you want is always in agreement with you on one condition, that it's always he who is in charge. He's for democracy, progress, all instruction, as long as it's in his direction. Uh, Big labels and big treacheries. So let's get away from political labels. But then he concludes this uh, diatribe by saying, the Jew does not fear anything. He's afraid of only one thing, of communism without Jews. Mm -hmm. And elsewhere in this piece, he talks more about how, uh, you know, the the French owning the the product of France, that would be a better world. And Mm -hmm. and Jews would be happy with that if they could be in charge of it. But what he envisions is, is, is a communism without Jews. But in a way, first of all, there's nothing Marxist in his account of communism, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically France for the French in Drummond's yes. sense, right? So um, what he's talking about is a national socialism. Yeah, right? there's no there's no two ways about it, right? And so maybe a much clearer case for 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 Celine's sort of uh, uh, intellectual affinity with fascism can be seen right. here than anywhere and, else. I was surprised and- we didn't didn't get that. Yeah, to the extent that he dislikes capitalism. I think he largely dislikes it because he does see it as Jewish and because he associates with the losers, right? So fascism has winners and losers. At its most basic, it's about how the lo- there's a group of losers who should be winners. And if they just destroy the winners who should be losers, right, usually the Jews, but also various others, then finally the winners could be winners. Uh, and there's some of that in Celine. Uh, but he really puts his more emphasis on uh, the 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 loss, right? That the French have lost something. They've lost something to the Jews, and they are unlikely to get it back. It's also worth noting. So, national socialism, I think, is one way to describe it. National Bolshevism could be another. And there were strains. They were always, you know, very subterranean. They never really dominated policy, but there were strains even in Nazi Germany of the idea that uh, that the Soviet Union and the Nazis should work together, that actually if they could cleanse the Jewish influence from communism, then they would have uh, a worthwhile ally to defeat liberal democracy and capitalism. Also worth noting I think in part because national Bolshevism has always been this kind of sub rosa tradition within fascism, because most fascists are quite clear that they want to destroy communism and consider any communist or Bolshevik to be a de facto Jew. Uh, that national Bolshevism also uh, has uh, a disproportionate connection to literary modernism and postmodernism and kind of avant-garde art. The example I would give would be uh, Edward Lomanov, a major Russian writer of the late 20th century. Uh, He was kind of the Russian punk rock writer and memoirist, highly influenced by Celine. He he wrote for The Exile, uh, which I know uh, a number of listeners are familiar with. Uh, You know, this kind of uh, punk-influenced 
uh, English English language expat paper in Moscow during the 90s and the aughts. Uh, and eventually he created a national Bolshevik party in Russia that challenged Yeltsin and Putin, uh, but was also, uh, you know, their uh, fans of Lomonov's work kind of cough and avoid the anti-Semitism involved, especially in his partnership with Alexander Dugin, uh, who some of you might know is uh, a, a propagandist for Putin and for Putin's agenda of control over Ukraine. Uh, they, the, to be clear, uh, Lomonov and uh, Dugin uh, cut ties fairly early on. But yeah, this idea that uh, the good things about communism were what most of us would consider the bad things. Uh, you know, the violence, the revolutionary, uh, the revolutionary elitism, and if you could kick out the Jewish element that, you know, insisted on the idea that it's a liberation for everyone, then, you know, what, what do you have? You have something that uh, violence-worshipping young men, or in case, some cases middle-aged men like Celine and eventually Lomonov was, could get behind. Uh, and, and one last clarification I would add before moving forward to the uh, Celine Hindus situation uh, is that uh, Drew's right that uh, Vitu kind of soft pedals Celine's fascism, kind of taking the example, the the line that we're taking about how Celine uh, didn't really believe in a fascist victory, uh, did not emphasize the creation of a new man or a new society, uh, and also Celine's lack of cooperation, meaningfully speaking. With the German co-op, with the German authorities, including what could be classified as even minor acts of what you could call resistance, he was known, for instance, to as in his role as a doctor, to uh, sign off uh, on pretty much anyone, any Frenchman who came to him, uh, to get a uh, doctor's notice saying this guy is not fit for hard labor, which could potentially save you from being drafted to like the French slave labor formations that the Germans eventually started drafting in France to work the factories during as they started losing the war. But I also agree with Drew uh, that he, he belongs in the fascist category, even if he's not a very good fascist. Uh, I will say for V2, he did not try to soft pedal Celine's anti-Semitism. He admits that he was a devoted anti-Semite and that that was bad. Yeah, and yeah, and, and you know the, the old the old chestnut about about uh, anti-Semitism being a socialism of fools, I think, applies here. Right. Of how much of a fool or what sort of fool Celine uh, is, because he's clearly mm-hmm. very intelligent in other ways. Yes, uh, <laughs> uh, is is an interesting question, but. Um, this 1941 pamphlet is really going to cause him some trouble because now he's not just sh- shouting into the wind, right? He's shouting into a world in which uh, the Nuremberg laws or versions of them are basically being generalized to mm-hmm. most of Europe um, and the, the march toward extermination has begun. Um, so he is making himself, at least in a diffuse kind of way, uh, complicit with that. Uh, and not not to mention, of course, uh, the implication of collaboration. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, publishing something like this at the time and place that he's doing it uh, can't 
help but appear to be, I think is materially aiding France's enemies, especially if you're a supporter of de Gaulle or of any of the various uh, would be resistance leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, So so that's going to get him in a lot of trouble. And that's maybe the transition point into the next part of our story. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, you're saying that a substantial number of your fellow Frenchmen uh, deserve to be destroyed by the German occupier and his collaborators. Yeah, and he's later, I mean, this this formulation, uh, not to get go into it too much, but this formulation of communism without Jews, I mean, something that he'll try to do later on is to deny that he had any that he meant any sort of violence or that he right. would, have, would have would have condoned any sort of violence. It's very hard to imagine what he means by that he's able to talk about a society without Jewish influence or something and that being achieved nonviolently. But, right. <laughs> like how how credulous are we to be about these? And he was and he was a bi- <laughs> and he was a biological anti-Semite as well. Right. You do get anti-Semites who believe that okay, well if Jews not that this is a good position, but that if Jews give up their Judaism, they convert to Christianity or whichever other belief system, uh, then okay, fine, they they could be part of society. Maybe slightly suspicious until a few generations in, but uh, you know, and that wasn't the type of anti uh, that type of anti-Semitism could assist the Holocaust. But the anti-Semitism that caused the Holocaust was a biological anti-Semitism that held that Jews, uh, no matter no matter what they profess to believe, even if they convert to another religion or abandon religion altogether or abandon Judaism, uh, they are this way. They are this subversive power-seeking uh, collective that will subvert all Western civilization. Uh, It's a a racial, it's a blood trait. Yes, and that Celine believed that, and he kind of abused his scientific slash medical background uh, and borrowed a lot of metaphors, uh, as did many uh, anti-Semites and fascists, uh, to depict Judaism as and and the existence of Jewish people. uh, Full, you know, it's not like he was going to embrace Christianity. Right. So Celine didn't believe in God. Uh, You know, he wasn't going to say, oh, if the Jews just get baptized, everything's cool. No, that's not what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that the the metaphors of infection and all of these Mm -hmm. other things that are so such uh, hygiene. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And 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 relating to his his thematic obsession with dirtiness and cleanliness and everything Mm -hmm. else. We can come back to that later on, but I think it's time maybe to bring uh, Hindus onto the scene. Yes, let's. Um, so um, it's March 1945, and National Socialist regime is starting to collapse. I mean, it's uh, March 25th, I think, is the crossing of the Rhine um, the, the, the Allied armies, of course, the, the in the east on the Eastern Front, Soviets and their uh, ancillaries are are advancing on Berlin, um, and uh, Celine puts a finger to the wind, <laughs> right, and, and realizes that things are only going to get worse for him. Um, decides to so he gets the transit papers to go to Denmark, which at the time is still under German occupation. Mm-hmm. So he goes to Denmark and just figures no one will notice me here, or maybe they won't. Certainly, I'll be safer there than going back to France. He knows that a lot of the um, the 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 uh, national, I guess what what you'd call the the um, provisional government of the French mm-hmm. Republic. Kind of has uh, 
a price on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's known for being, or at least considered to be uh, a collaborator. And so he's going to be sought. Um, and so uh, in November, 1945, which is a couple of uh, now, uh, May 8th, 9th, 1945, that's VE day, right? Um, the unconditional surrender. Um, it's not for a couple of more months. Uh, obviously the French government, new French government under de Gaulle has a, a few other things to do in France. Um, but one of the things they're gonna do is seek out uh, Celine um, and other sort of emigre uh, uh, accused of the occupation period. Um, so uh, as Peter said earlier, uh, the Danes take Celine into custody and they hold him, but they don't extradite him right away. They hold him for um, almost two years a year, year and a half, two years, um, until June of 1947. It's apparently a pretty harsh experience in prison, yeah. at least if we believe Selena, if you want to say something about that. Yeah, there, there's relatively, Vitu believes that there seemed to be relatively good documentation that, you know, Danish prison after the occupation, late 40s, wasn't, wasn't a picnic. Uh, apparently, a lot of this happened because when the French sent that request to the Danes. Uh, Celine's lawyer, who who is Danish lawyer, who was a pretty, you know, standard, uh, you know, uh, social democratic Scandinavian who thought that a guy shouldn't be persecuted for writing, uh, which is how he would have put it, not as collaboration, which again, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Uh, he was on tour or he, he, he had to go to America for some sort of business involving re-establishing, I think, Denmark's place after having been occupied by the Nazis for several years. So there was a whole comedy of errors element to it, uh, which was actually precisely the kind of situation that Celine delighted in setting up and describing in his novels, except this time it was happening. Well, a lot of the time in his novels, it happened to him too. This time it led to him being in a pretty rough jail situation and his wife as well. Yeah. So, yes. So he's living right with his wife, Lucette, who you mentioned. So they did eventually marry. He did eventually, I guess he must have divorced and married her in 1943, his dancer wife. Um, And so they're hiding out together. She goes through all of these trials and tribulations with him uh, from his perspective. Um, And um, so he's he's released in June of 1947. He hides out in a little village called uh, Kursor. Um, in uh, in Denmark, and uh, he's going to stay there until July 1951. During the time that almost four years, he is actually a little more than four years. He is going to be tried in absentia, um, convicted of sort of a minor level of collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, national indignity. So some of his goods are supposed to like 50 percent of his goods are supposed to be confiscated, which might be the basis for what he says later on in Castle to Castle about having all this stuff stolen. Um, who knows? Fines and, and uh, loss of civil rights and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think they were going to maybe give him a year in prison, something like that. So if, if when he came back, so he was never in danger of being shot, although, of course, he would also present it as that was what was going to happen. Um, but during those four years, um, he starts a campaign to protect his belongings in Montmartre, in his in his, in his, mm-hmm. his apartment, right? To protect his rights to his books. Uh, and he's a very kind of dollars and cents guy. So yes. during, this uh, maybe, during maybe his only, whole life, according to yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got very, he's got very material concerns. He's worried about what's going to happen to his career. He loses uh, a uh, um, pretty big publication uh, contract that he had signed because of his um uh political dabbling 
uh, during this period. So he's, he's very aware that his uh, reputation, but more importantly, his career is in danger. Um, and so he has some foreign fans um, who are willing to go to bat with him, uh, particularly with the American government and with the French government. And one of those fans is Milton Handis. So at some point previously, um, earlier in the 40s, they had begun this on and off letter exchange, um, but it's really going to intensify in 1947 and 48. Um, and, you know, I don't want to read intention too much into things. It's hard to say for sure what Celine was thinking, but I think it's consistent with his overall thinking that perhaps Hindus could help him. And Hindus was happy to try. Um, he was part of a, a group of, of pretty famous American and French intellectuals who uh, petitioned for his uh, for him to be amnestied, um, petitioned the United States government to intervene on his behalf or give him a visa or something to keep him from basically what they thought would be a kangaroo court in France, right? So there's already kind of a response of like, maybe things are getting overzealous, right? We get that your society was divided mm -hmm. and you had a civil war and now you're all angry at each other, but don't destroy our uh, Europe's heritage, right? right. Your, Europe's spiritual tradition it's 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 writers and artists um and right. so take, take the example of our civil war just let everyone off sorry right right yeah, maybe so it wasn't quite like that i know i know no well i mean but but maybe that's in some deep psychological way for americans that was right it is is you know brother versus brother or something mm -hmm. um so whatever it was that i think i think that hindus really wasn't sure whether Celine should be considered culpable for his views. By this time, he's aware of the anti-Semitic pamphlets. He had even confronted him about it in letters. Um, and he certainly wasn't happy about it. Yeah. Right? Um, but he was fascinated by Celine as a writer before he knew him as an anti-Semitic writer. I mean, he mm -hmm. had been, uh, Hindus was involved and he had, he had written about Journey to the End of the Night and and uh, uh, Death on Credit and his mm -hmm. other books for the American audiences. He'd helped to translate um, or get translations published of Celine's works in America. So he had tied his reputation a little bit to Celine's, you know, not, not in like a friend way, yeah. or a, but in a in a um, admirer critic to to uh, creator kind of relationship. Right, and and a guy introducing him to a new audience which is really right. critical if you're going to gain international acclaim, right? You usually need, you, you need some sort of interlocutor uh, in the publishing field, bringing you in across national boundaries, across languages. It's also worth noting that a lot of people didn't know what to make of Celine's descent into anti-Semitism, uh, including other, I believe it was Andre Gide who swore it was either Geed or Mulrow. It was one of the entrees uh, who it swore. It was definitely Geed. It may have been Mulrow as well. But who swore Gide. that it was all a joke. Who said that Celine, it's clearly all, look at how ridiculous this is. This stupid thing he wrote. Uh, you know, Bagatelle's uh, for a massacre. Uh, this is obviously a joke. He doesn't mean it. He's tr the, if they had access to the term at the time, they would have said he was just trolling. Eventually became obvious it's not what was going on. That's what a lot of people thought. So there was a certain amount of like chaff in the air about what exactly he was doing. And there was always an element with some of these transgressive writers. I think that there was a particularly on Gide's part, um, th this sense that 
uh, pillorying like another transgressive writer might be a risk to mm. transgressive writing in general. I don't know. It, it, I mean, this is maybe a little bit of an extrapolation, but mm-hmm. I, I think that that was part of the thinking was that he should be free to satirize. Right. right? Um, if indeed it is satire, which right. he insisted that it was. And because you can never <laughs> quite tell, you got to err on the side of caution, right. dot, dot, dot. Right. Sure. So one particular attitude, and there are a bunch of uh, notable Americans, uh, both writers and critics, um, who sign on to this. But Hindus goes a little further than them, uh, quite a bit further, uh, actually, in space, um, uh, to Denmark eventually. Um, so, uh, and this, uh, a few things I want to say about this, because usually when we talk about, if you've ever heard of this story before, you, maybe you have. Um, if you have, it's usually presented as the harrowing uh, encounter between the American Jewish man and, an, and a, a, a very a brutal anti-Semite uh, in over, like through a discussion of literature, they talk about uh, everything that's just happened over the previous, you know, uh, decade and, uh, you know, or more uh, in Europe. Uh, it's also an encounter between America and Europe. It's an encounter mm-hmm. between a very American guy with a very American outlook um, on letters and on free speech and on history and a, and a very European kind of, a very fr- specifically French kind of bigot, really. Um, and those are some things people talk about when they talk about this story. Um, but I think it's important to understand that, um, and, and I think that sometimes that lends itself to people ask questions like, what did Hindus think he was doing? What do you think was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Right? He, he had read, you know, these three pamphlets. He, these were, he, he, and, and people will tend to, even I did this, you know, when I first got to know this story, I was like, oh, he's sort of, uh, you know, you sweet summer child, right? You're, you're yeah. going into this situation, right? And, 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 and sort of walking into it, maybe a trap. And I do wonder how much it was a trap. And I'll come back to that later on. Mm. But, um, or how much he was being set up to be used somehow. Or was right. he naive, I guess? That's the question about Hindus um, that people will ask. But I think one thing that really helps to put that into um, uh, perspective is that, Celine wasn't the whole point for Hindus. Mm-hmm. Um, Hindus wasn't going to Europe in uh, eventually, I guess, the spring of 1948. Um, he wasn't going there just to see Celine. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he had this very ambitious plan, but almost vaultingly ambitious plan, um, to meet with a whole large number of famous European writers, um, basically just to check up on them, to mm-hmm. see how their work had uh, suffered from or benefited from or how it had changed because of the war to see how their lives were going. Mm. He wanted to interview uh, pe- people like André Malraux, people like Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, right? Um, all of whom were known to have been, uh, been involved in anti-Nazi resistance, but also a number of people who were associated with collaboration. Celine, uh, for example, uh, Knut Hamsun in, in Norway. Yeah, that guy was uh, a real fash. Yeah, uh, which which yeah. is funny because the Norwegians like to insist that there was only that one guy who liked Nazism in all of Norway, Quisling. Uh, Quisling <laughs> but turns out there was uh, at least one other, <laughs> one more Quisling, um, and was a Nobel yeah. Prize winner. Yeah, uh, right. So a gr- so a great writer yes. from, from this perspective. So uh, and he sees it as this mission to post-war Europe um, that he starts planning sometime in 1946 or 47. Um, and what I know about it comes from a letter that he wrote to his dean uh, at his college in the University of Chicago, a guy named F. Champion Ward, 
um, which is a great name for it. Yeah. <laughs> An early, uh, late 40s era uh, academic dean. But um, so, uh, and this letter describes this much more ambitious plan um, to meet people on kind of both sides of that divide and sort of try to figure out what had become of Europe's sort of spiritual heritage. He, he, he had a very sort of idealist way of seeing literature as a sort of mm. like the, the pure accretion of culture. Mm -hmm. right? And so he wanted to see sort of what had, and what had happened to the great writers. Um, he also had another project that he wanted to pursue. So Celine was sort of part of that project. And mm -hmm. then there was another project, which is he had been getting into Yiddish literature. Mm -hmm. um, and so he wanted to seek out the surviving Yiddish writers um, of, of sort of uh, Poland and the Soviet Union. Um, and also uh, and also to do a sort of some, apparently some archival work on some deceased Yiddish writers mm -hmm. um, like Sholem Aleichem and, uh, um, and uh, Mendela Moher Seferim. Um, so, so he he had been getting into, and this is part of his sort of Jewish awakening, which is a whole other story that's going on here. So he's got this huge ambitious project that he wants to do. It's only the Celine part that he actually ends up doing um, ultimately. One other little note about this larger plan, and the reason why I mention it is not just because I think it's interesting; it's, it it puts it all kind of in in context in terms of scale, but it it also it's clear that Celine was kind of a means to an end for Hindus. And I don't want to be cynical about it, right? It's, the idea wasn't necessarily that he wanted to use Celine to make his career, although I'm sure that's how Celine would have seen it. Um, mm -hmm. But rather that, you know, Celine was, he was an object for study, among other things, right? Um, Hindus was getting something out of the relationship, I guess you could say, um, not just sort of getting gulled. Um, but uh, but also, I think, interestingly, the idea for this big, ambitious trip to Europe to see these Yiddish writers, writers in, in the Yiddish language and also uh, French and German and Norwegian and other writers, um, it doesn't seem to have been Hindus' idea. Now, this is kind of a, a weird little uh, a loose end of the archive that I was pulling at. Um, but I found a letter um, to uh, Hindus um, from uh, Samuel Roth, who I mentioned mm. before. Uh, and I want to say very quickly a couple things about Samuel Roth. So Samuel Roth, you might be familiar um, with a very uh, important uh, First Amendment case um, before the Supreme Court um, in the late 50s, I think. I'm trying to remember what year exactly. Um, uh, 1957, um, uh, Roth versus the United States. Um, so Roth was uh, a, uh, is a publisher sort of owned a small publishing house. Um, in 1928, he published like a Sami's Dot edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which at the time mm -hmm. was censored and illegal to sell in the United States, um, in the US. Um, so he also got a reputation for being a pornographer, um, not just because of Lady Chatterley's Lover, but because of the actual porn the pornography that he, th that mm. he sold. Um, but uh, um, he was at this interesting meeting point between high literature, high culture, and sort of bathos uh, that we talked about earlier when we were planning this episode. Um, so Roth was an interesting guy in his own right. He was also, for better lack of better terms, or at least this is how Hindus described it, a Jewish anti-Semite. Um, Samuel Roth was a Jewish man um, in New York City. Um, he wrote a book in 1934 called Jews Must Live, which was read very much like Celine's sort of conspiratorial anti-Semitism. So huh. It characterizes the Jews as plaguing the, the non-Jewish world and all these things. It's very self-hating kind huh. of book. Um, and so um, it's actually that's how Hindus met Roth. 
Hindus, when he was about to leave New York, he was going to leave his job at the New School for Social Research in 1946 and go to the University of Chicago. He sought out Roth to meet him because he wanted a copy of his book because it was rare. Uh, it was hard to find. And he was just wanted to study it, basically. Um, but he ended up befriending Roth. And it, actually, it was Roth's press eventually in 1950 that published uh, The Crippled Giant, his book about Celine. Mm. Um, so very another odd sort of relationship. So, but it was Samuel Roth, apparently, who recommended uh, to Hindus that he not just go to see Celine, but make it into a bigger trip to meet all of these scholars and get, or, or writers rather, and to get a sort of picture of where European letters was at after the war. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting letter. Um, they seem to have conspired about this idea. Mm. So, so, you know, we can go into that more if you want to. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I do know that I know a little bit about sort of the history involved with American censorship law in the 20th century really seemed to have been moved forward by publishers who often had this dual interest in literary, in, in the literary avant-garde, like a genuine interest in, in pushing forward literature as they understood it, and in pornography, right? And the two kind of went hand in hand, especially, uh, with the coming of what has since been called the paperback revolution, which sort of around World War II and especially the period at the decades after, paperback publishing becomes extremely cheap. Uh, the U.S. military actually prints uh, millions of volumes of paper of paperbacks of all kinds, running from you know Mickey Spillane crime uh, type hardboiled type stuff to you know little pocket editions of of the classics as they were then understood for to it to keep the troops entertained uh because you know you could carry it with you in a way you couldn't carry you know a movie at that time uh and uh this was also a time of expanding access to higher education a time when uh in the post-war period when it seemed important for class mobility for people to be able to have an appreciation for uh, somewhat more advanced, one can say, uh, ideas about art and uh, be able to talk intelligently about modernist subjects. I mean, that's how that was part of the Playboy ideal as Hugh Hefner sold it. And so you had these publishers who, who kind of pushed the envelope and helped bring down uh, you know, the, re the regime that allowed for the censorship of things like Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, and also uh, creating the condition, the material conditions for this massive propagation of literature of all kinds from uh, high literature to social theory, uh, to history, to genre fiction, to uh, literary pornography. Um, and it seems that many of these people, including Samuel Roth, were real enthusiasts for all of it, which I think is which I think is kind of kind of kind of interesting in a way, kind of neat. You know, I'm not usually into most literary pornography, I got to admit, but you know, if we're going to have them, it's nice if they also are uh, you know genuinely dedicated to their concept of free speech and genuinely dedicated to uh, really uh, putting putting everything out there that they think anyone might want to read. And Roth was jailed again and again 
for yeah. like one obscenity charge after another. Oh, yes. Really mad about it. It really was a matter of principle. A lot of these guys did. A lot of these guys uh, had that issue going even into the 60s. They And it kind of came to be almost a rite of passage for some of these uh, <laughs> publishers and editors, and it probably didn't hurt sales. But yeah, it also sucks to go to jail, so... Well, right around the time, the same time, you have you know somebody like Lenny Bruce, yes, know, trying to do trying to do transgressive stand up and getting running afoul of the same stuff. So, oh yeah, very very interesting. Um, yeah, so so I don't know what we make of the Samuel Roth possible involvement in this story, but whatever the case, Hindus is part of this network of people, but he's the one who decides to go to Denmark in July 1948. Um, and by then, I think it's interesting to note that he'd already known for two months that he was gonna be leaving his job at the University of Chicago um, and leaving his unfinished doctorate um, and going to Brandeis University, this new uh, secular Jewish sponsored university in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, he had been personally invited by Abram Sacker, the first uh, president of Brandeis. Um, so part of his sort of journey toward maybe identifying more with Jewishness um, and, uh, and and it's in the light of that, I think, that we should also view his his uh, meeting with uh, Celine um, in this little town, a little town of Corsor, um, and uh, in his uh, sort of cottage that he's living in with Lucette um, and uh, at least one cat. Yep, Bibert, uh, <laughs> his, famous, his famous cat. Yes, yes, Bibert. Um, and so... Um, uh, so these meetings over a couple of weeks... Um, Kindis uh, stays in a hotel in town and, um, and and moves hotels because the first hotel that Celine gets him is disgusting until he gets a different one. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, and he meets with him in this cottage over a couple of weeks. Um, and these meetings are interviews of a sort. Um, and uh, almost uh, the genre is, is is difficult to determine of these interviews. And of course, both of them will, well, particularly Hindus will write down his account of what happened. And it will become The Crippled Giant, uh, his book, 1950 book about Celine and what happened to Celine, more or less, right? And, and, and what does Celine have to tell us about Europe and the war and, and Europe after World War II and, and the, the sort of the moral state of, of, of literary civilization, right? Um, and so, um, Hindus, uh, so what did they talk about? Um, probably won't surprise us that Celine talked about himself a lot. Mm -hmm. um, he talked about his worries. He talked about his property he was worried about and his and his uh, the, the sort of his physical uh, ailments and the irritation that they caused him. Uh, he talked about the how the Danish communists were going to come and slit his throat at any moment. Mm -hmm. uh, that um, he talked about, you know, really cast himself as a victim. Um, as as he would tend to do, um, he talked about his concerns about his books and his publication rights, and whether he would ever be able to sell a book again. And you know, yeah, um, so, yeah. Celine was not above that kind of thing, <laughs> either in his uh, in in his actual life, or to, you know, not trying to not trying to hand it to him, but trying to be real about it uh, to. In his fiction, in his fictional depictions of his of himself. Now he was also quite capable of lying in the other direction, and making himself seem better than he appeared, uh, or denying specific, you know, uh, things he had done if he thought that that would uh, disadvantage him or give his enemies ammunition. Because he really did kind of run off a of spite, 
but yeah, this is very this is very much in keeping. Go on. Yeah, so they did talk about literature, though, and that's what Hindus was there for, right? Um, I think Hindus was interested in learning more about Celine and how he saw literature. Um, obviously, uh, Hindus was drawn to Celine by his style first mm-hmm. and foremost, which was so surprising and 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 full of life mm-hmm. and activity and and sort of aesthetic interest. Yeah, um, and. You know, they had discussed this a little bit in their letters previously, um, but they sort of dug into this question of uh, what was it that Celine thought was the purpose of writing? Um, how did he see himself as a writer? Celine insisted that he was not a, a sort of a, a sort of a great thinker or mm-hmm. a philosopher of any sort. He was simply a stylist, um, and that what he was proud of was his style, which he said the style was defined by uh, the effort to approximate real human speech uh, as closely as possible and through that to achieve a level of sort of uh, emotional um impact maybe honesty i'm mm. not sure if i say that a, a sort of honesty yeah right <laughs> an honesty about the experience of uh of how it felt from a certain perspective to go through whatever sort of thing that he was describing i think that i think it's fair to say that is at least yeah yeah, um, Hindus wanted to know what was up with those pamphlets, though. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that was obviously part of why he was there, too. He wanted to know, why did you write them? Why, why do you think these things? Do you really think these things? Right. Right, in, in a way, kind of responding to some of his American scholar and writer friends in America. I mean, he's writing letters to people like William Carlos Williams at the same time mm-hmm. and and others, and when Carlos Williams actually has some very interesting things to say about this, um, but yeah. a lot of them really doubt that uh, that uh, Celine is morally culpable in the way that some people think he is. And so, what's going on? Um, and Celine doesn't deny that he's an anti-Semite, um, and he um, and he sort of uh, and he doesn't apologize for it, not mm-hmm. at all. Um, and uh, the one thing he apologizes for is uh, that um, he, well. He sort of frames it as maybe he underestimated the Jews, mm. right? In this general sense, um, he he presents himself as once again a sort of victim and loser of the equation. Yes, um, as the Jews had won, and the and the the Aryans, which is a term he continues to insist on using, mm-hmm. um, had lost. Um, Jews supposedly, right, were all of the political commissars in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. They were also all the the bankers and industrialists in the West, and so, right, um, and so. Oops. Uh, so, so very uh, sort of self-pitying. Um, he uh, expresses disappointment in Hitler, uh, basically as a fool, mm-hmm. miscalculated. Um, he, however, does express disapproval of the Holocaust mm-hmm. in a certain way, in his in his in his uh, his inimitable manner. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, in that he he says, "This isn't what I was talking about at all." Right, is basically his take on on the Holocaust. I never suggested that there should be, because the eliminationist element of the anti-Semitism in his so-called pamphlets is something Hindus points out. And he says, well, that wasn't what I meant. What I meant is that uh, Jewish domination had to be overcome. And we have to do that, he literally says, um, by making the Aryans uh, as smart, as capable as mm-hmm. the Jews. He has this sort of, this sort of um, 
perverse philosemitism. Yes. Where, where he says, almost like some stories people tell about certain elements of the Japanese government during the mm-hmm. war, that saw the Jews as sort of, sort of um, uh, epically capable. Yes. Right? And sort of admirable for that. And he's sort of like, no, it's not that we want to get rid of them. It's that we want to make ourselves better in order to be right. able to, quote unquote, handle them. Yes. Yeah, that's so that, a cl- that was, yeah. That is sometimes the closest he has to a positive program. Uh, is yeah, we us uh, we need to smarten up. And if you know how Celine feels about most people, you would know that smartening up wasn't very likely to happen uh, on any kind of scale. He he also says things to Hindus like. Um, he says a lot of things to, to Hindus, and this gets into what's really going on in this room, uh, which I think is in the interesting interpretive questions here. Um, he, he says things to him that are so glib or, or possibly just out of touch, who knows? Mm-hmm. He says things like, yes, yes, the, the victims of national socialism and fascism, their consideration must be made for them. But what about the anti-Semites? <laughs> right? We are also victims. Yeah, he says this, right? And so, and, and it's not clear whether he's being, once again, like in his writing, it's sometimes unclear whether he's got his tongue firmly planted in his cheek and right. he's trying to go with this guy, right? That, that's uh, the hard thing to tell. You know, really yeah. Is, whatever it is. Yeah, I think one of the things you have to kind of think about when you're dealing with somebody like this, it's it's less like thinking about how you would deal with like, I don't know, uh, a political theorist or, or even most novelists or a historian or whatever, a polemicist even, you have to think of Celine as like the guy who's trying to get away with shit. Uh, you know, he's he's like the guy at the end of the bar who, you know, his, what he actually believes, what he actually believes or what he'll actually do depends in a large part on what he thinks he can get away with what he thinks will advance whatever kind of uh, inchoate personal agenda lives in his head. Uh, and that, and yeah, you could, I, I feel like if I, if I heard this argument at the end of a bar, like, I feel like you could, he, I, I, it wouldn't seem that out of place. Like after, uh, after some uh, kind of smart, dumb types were, you know, a few drinks in, uh, now I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the types of bar I go to uh, probably wouldn't like guys uh, to talk about what about the anti-Semites, but you know, especially go back about ten or twenty years, I feel like you could hear it. I don't know. Yeah, so that that makes sense that Celine would defend himself as primarily a stylist. You could see that that being the way in which maybe his various other literary defenders defended him, right? Uh, you know, they might have tried to equivocate about his anti-semitism or his fascism intellectually but my guess is at heart they just kind of thought well you know he's a good writer i we like him we admire him for his writing therefore let us just kind of make excuses because at the end of the day that that's what counts yeah um yeah i i wonder and and i think uh part of what's interesting about the hindus relationship is and what I've tried to identify from the beginning is Hindus himself is changing while this mm-hmm. is happening. Celine doesn't seem to change. And actually, Hindus says something interesting about it. He says, he says, uh, neither, uh, he said, Celine and I cannot basically affect one another. 
Uh-huh. I think that's the quote. I don't have it in front of me, but right. The idea that they're sort of like their 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 aims and their worldviews and everything are sort of so orthogonal that they don't like. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't feel that Celine is 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 changeable, right? Um, and uh, and and he he kind of comes forward to him in his meetings with him, but uh, he did sour on Celine over the course of the meetings. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he, uh, he he tried desperately to be fair to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, in the crippled giant, the way he ends up concluding it, uh, is basically trying to sum up, well, okay, so what do I make of this man? And what does he tell us about the war and the, the Holocaust and the occupation of France and everything else? Um, and it turns out, uh, that quite a bit from, mm-hmm. from Hindus' perspective. So I think it's worth considering. Uh, he says basically that he doesn't see Celine as a Nazi, in sort of traditional sense, nor even as a collaborator. And I wonder if that's still sort of the last sort of ghost of him trying to defend him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 uh, but he does say that he's morally culpable because his views were actually closer to the views of probably the majority of people who went along with right. what was being done. And that in fact, his sort of more instinctual anti-Semitism was, was yes. sort of closer to the views of most French people, which is almost certainly true yeah. from a historical perspective. Um, and uh, uh, then the sort of the high, uh, high theorizing. Um, right. The yeah. You know, this idea, oh, we, we have it tough. Uh, the, the, the Jews want us to, uh, you know, pity them and care about them. But what about us? Not unlike how most Germans, even after the end of the war for a number of years until, uh, you know, sort of the awareness, full awareness of the Holocaust was brought home to them, said, oh, yeah, well, yeah, the Jews suffered, but we suffered, too. Uh, you know, we had all these allied bombings and, you know, the uh, yeah, there were food shortages, right? Um, small, yeah. that kind of small mindedness and like self narrativizing, self dramatization, that kind of stuff, uh, I think, probably works better for fascism and anti-Semitism than than any kind of you know high theory right then sort of like rosenberg's you know myth of the 20th century which mm. you know has this sort of uh sort of pseudo history of the world yes yes like hardly anyone read it and it wasn't <laughs> it was hardly a bible of national socialism it was, right. it was uh, it's an attempt to create sort of uh respectable intellectual uh right. fascism but that yeah. was never it's it's sort of uh, geist, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think what emerges from the crippled giant, which is which is Hindus's account of the meetings, and so he never really wrote his own version of it, although he did write a response. Mm-hmm. Um, is the image of I guess what I'd call an abusive pseudo friendship um, between. Uh, Maybe a sort of a literary idol and an admirer, maybe a kind of um, mentor-mentee relationship, or maybe like a like a missed chance for that, right? Mm-hmm. An attempt, an attempt, certainly on Hindus's uh, part to sort of learn from uh, the great man, the great, the great, at least the great writer about writing, um, and his attempt to sort of separate, uh, you know, his his feelings about. Celine's politics from that, um, it, it's certainly an abusive exchange. I mean, the things that Celine says to him are, are terrible. 
um, and irrational and confusing. And I think of uh, famous uh, Jean-Paul Sartre um, uh, essay on anti-Semite and Jew, uh, where he mm. says that the anti-Semite delights in his own bad faith. Yes. Uh, he's the person who is not only dishonest, bad faith is not just about dishonesty with others, but dishonesty with oneself, about mm -hmm. one's intentions, right? He's not even trying to approximate truth or even exactly to lie, right? right? Um, but simply to bully and discomfort, as yes. Sartre puts it. And so, and that's true. And 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 Hindus is being bullied, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and and abused by a person who's built a certain amount of trust with him, at least on mm -hmm. the level of like a literary interlocutor. Yeah. Over the previous couple of years of correspondence. Um, Yet Hindus claims, and I think it's true, that he wasn't what he calls the admiring doormat that Celine would have wanted him to be, mm -hmm. um, and that Celine would only have been happy if he had been. Um, right. he, he Instead, he had his own aims. And I think that this larger story about his other goals that he had in Europe, even though he never completed them, because he had to get back for the first day of school at, at Brandeis, among other things, right. um, that uh, puts it in, in, in context. So, you know, what was... Celine, what, what, what did what did Hindus want out of Celine and what did Celine want out of Hindus? You know, there's a very cynical reading of it. There's a little bit more uh, even-handed reading. Was Hindus uh, trying to seek real intimacy of a sort, uh, at least intellectual intimacy with Celine? Um, and was it just that they their minds were as different as two minds could possibly be, which is, I think, one of the things Hindus leaves feeling? Um, was Celine's supposed to be his friend or some sort of curiosity, right? Um, was he an interlocutor that they could talk about the things they both cared about together mm -hmm. or were they deadly enemies? Right. Um, so he writes, uh, July 30th, 1948, um, Hindus recounts uh, his impression that, quote, Celine is as tightly packed with lies as a boil is with pus. To lance him suddenly would run the risk of killing him altogether as it would also contain the possibility of relieving him. Uh, so he's obviously disgusted with him. Yeah. Um, but he also thinks that maybe he can be freed from his lies. Yeah. When I read, when I read Crippled Giant, um, you know, there's the old saw that you should never meet your heroes. Uh, I have met one or two people who I uh, had a, you know, who I admired from literature, who I then went on to meet and it turned out pretty good but for the most part it's not a, it, it reminds me of a worse version of the kinds of people who would go seek out uh one of one of celine's american admirers kurt vonnegut uh people who would try to seek out hunter s thompson people who would uh uh you know back in his day would try to seek out zola or other literary celebrities from the 19th century like dickens uh and almost inevitably come away uh disappointed Right. It's not just that the uh, that the writer didn't, you know, kiss their head and tell them they were a genius. I mean, if anything, I think Vonnegut was usually pretty on a superficial level nice at first, uh, but that they were just kind of guys. They were just people with with weaknesses like anyone else and that uh, usually they were pretty self-absorbed. Uh, and and interested in their work and themselves and what they could get, and yeah, they were uh, they they weren't the sage figures that they wanted, uh, mm. and he and Hindus got the version of that times a hundred, 
right? With <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and so would deny not only in his meetings with Hindus that are recounted in the Crippled Giant, but also later on in in conversations with Professor Y would deny that he was a thinker at all, right? And therefore. Right. He's not a great thinker, right? And, and that, that wasn't what he was trying to be. And so why are you trying to analyze me this way? Uh, and, you know, Hindus takes a couple different tacks in trying to understand Salim. He really does want to understand him and, and, why, and what his implications are. And it's kind of a, a little bit like he's on the analyst's couch, although mm-hmm. we had had a conversation about, you know, uh, whether whether or not uh, uh, Hindus was a Freudian and, and maybe mm-hmm. was a little bit of one. But they had an interesting exchange about that where Hindus uh, denied he was a Freud, denied he, he's, he, he saw Freud as inferior to more uh, what he saw as more mathematical, more scientific mm-hmm. approaches to psychology. But in any case, he's he's probing Celine's mind. He tries out a few Freudian uh uh, ideas like the idea that something in Celine's toilet training might have huh. you know, <laughs> been botched. And it's um, worth noting that Celine does talk about shitting a lot uh, yes. in, in his yes. novels. Uh, very so experimental it, uh, right. That's not, yes, that too. It's not completely out of he wasn't doing total Freud by numbers there. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And um, But basically the, the conclusion that Hindus comes to is that uh, Celine's problem is his imprecision of thought. Uh, he says he has emotional diarrhea. Mm-hmm. He says it's, it's, he's, it's untempered by reason. Um, he, he points out that Celine has a, a tendency to make small factual errors constantly. Not because he's lying, but just out of sort of impatience right. or you know, just a lack of memory for he, he doesn't give a shit. Right. He doesn't right. feel he has to. Lack of mathematical reasoning. Right. And mm-hmm. the question is, is is he unable to or is, does he not want to or is he not trying to? Mm-hmm. I think those are different. Um, and Hindus is more inclined to say that he has some sort of blockage or inability to do it than that it's sort of an element of his moral badness or something like that, which might be a weakness of Hindus's approach or a strength of it, uh, depending on how we see it. Um there's kind of a dy- dynamic that I've noticed uh, in the Crippled Giant and in their letters of sort of uh, flattery, particularly in the letters. There's sort of mutual flattery, mm. but it's a little more flattering. I mean, clearly he's trying to get in with this person and learn from him and, and everything else. Um, a little more flattery, but they sort of, sort of flatter each other. But him, uh, Celine will also say these outrageous things to him, even in the letters, right? Um, but not quite as extreme as what he says to him in person. Um, but I, there's sort of a dynamic where um, when Celine thinks he has an edge, he becomes very domineering, mm-hmm. um, sort of outright sort of abusive and hurls invective and things like this. Um, and Hindus will sometimes be cowed by this. And he'll swipe back in like his diary entries, which are the basis for a crippled giant. He'll mm-hmm. like have the spirit of the staircase, like they say in French. He'll have things he wished he said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When he was meeting with them. And he says it later on, like the boil filled with pus. Uh, right. Later. And you gotta um, figure someone like Celine would see that as particularly a particularly provocative form of cowardice after right. after the fact. Especially if you then go and publish this later. Yes. On, yes. <laughs> without him having read it. Yes. Um, so um Celine tried to stop the publication of the Crippled Giant. Actually, Hindus offered to let him read it. Uh, he, and he he and he did read it, as far as we know. Um, and and he didn't approve. And so he tried to stop him from publishing it. Um, and, uh, you know, um, but it's in 1951, uh, Celine is amnestied, uh, on the basis that he's a wounded war veteran, 
World War One, and mm -hmm. so he gets to go back to France, and he's he's slowly he starts to put his life back together and his career, um, and I think he sort of forgets his anger at Hindus a little bit, and sort of it, it sort of becomes more of a joke for him. Mm -hmm. So later on in 1957, when he publishes Conversations with Professor Y, which is pretty clearly based on their meetings because mm -hmm. they discuss many of the same topics, uh, you can see that it's 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 less with rancor and more with kind of the bemused. I don't know how you would describe conversations with Professor Y, but they do each get to kind of say their piece about about this encounter anyway. Right. He arguably gets, I don't think he necessarily intended it this way, but he arguably gets a kind of good revenge on Hindus by having Hindus say his piece, but then just kind of letting Celine fire back, not even so much fire back as present himself as, again, the stylist, the guy who's only concerned with creating these, he uses much more positive language, I remember, in Professor Y than he usually did. Uh, he, he, there's not as much of the scatological, there's not as much of the reflexive scabrousness. Uh, he, he has some uh, on a, somewhat lovely images of, oh, I'm just setting this, this train in motion. I'm creating this model. Uh, you know, much more benign language than you usually get uh, and kind of makes uh, Professor Y, you know, Hindus, out to be a stuffed shirt who just doesn't see the magic. Uh, yes. that's, that's another yeah. that's another old technique of literary right wingers is and I mean, I mean, literary people all over that any of their but I, I tend to notice some more from the right wingers, I guess, that anyone who objects to their politics uh, objects. And if there's anything whimsical about their art at all, or humorous, then they object to whimsy and humor, which is all they are. They're just a little guy. They're just a funny little guy, as they say. Oh, also, also that he simply doesn't and can't get it. Yes. Yes. That's, that's very important. That, that, that Hindus can't get the Hinduses of the world with their stuffed shirts and their uh, making making the tiny town in Kansas not dance. Uh, they, uh, they, yeah, they can't get someone like Celine. Their trains are running on parallel tracks. It's the, the dedication of, uh, so Conversations with Professor Y. So this is this book that, that uh, and maybe if you want to say more about it, but it's it's uh, later on, uh, Celine writes this book where he's sort of almost like a literary manifesto. It's maybe the closest yes. thing we have to that. But uh, framed as like a conversation with a professor who is, is sort of held up for ridicule, although honestly, it's relatively gentle ridicule. Yes. By, by by Celine's standard, right? And it's actually also probably his most sort of teacherly novel. In the yes. fact that he is actually trying to tell you how to kind of do what he does, or at least try to demystify it a little bit. Right. I mean, he dedicates it to those who love the magic of language. Mm -hmm. That's the the dedication of. Yeah, um, there was like this twinkly, like almost Willy Wonka sensibility <laughs> to it. Uh, which very is pretty, different, Celine. Yes, very different. And I think, again, I think if he just went tongue-lashing on Hindus, A, he might think that Hindus might just like it because uh, he, I, I could tell you, Celine was a Freud reader. Celine mm. was a, Celine uh, followed psychoanalysis. He didn't, he wasn't, you know, uh, a, a in-the-tank psychoanalyst. But mm -hmm. he was he was someone who was pretty interested in deviant psychology. And mm -hmm. I think he would have said, oh, he's just a masochist. He just likes it if I mm -hmm. make fun of him. That's why he came all the way to Denmark uh, to, 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 to get a good to get a few of the best from me. And he didn't even get it.
because I had just been in jail for a year and a half and I was exiled from my home. And if he thought he got the the best insults I could give him, well, I've got a few more for him. You know, if he did something like that, uh, you know, probably would have been pretty effective, but not as effective as just making Hindus a uh, bewildered side character in fucking, you know, uh, Louis Ferdinand Celine and the Magical Prose Factory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it's worth mentioning, of course, that it's not known for sure, but there, there's a reasonable hypothesis that the Y in conversations for, with Professor Y stands for one of several anti-Semitic slurs. Right. So, you know, so it's not why not Why not just have, yeah. Why, yeah, why isn't it Professor X, right? I mean, right. this was this was before the X-Men, so, you know, the name was I'm putting, a big yeah, I'm putting my fingers to my temples and trying yes, to... Yes, yes, trying to divine what he was getting at. Um, um all right, so uh, so uh, whatever the kind of relationship was between them, um, you know, we have this situation where Hindus did help usher Celine into something like literary fame on in English in America. Uh, that very same paperback revolution I mentioned uh, included uh, cheap paperback versions of English translations of Celine's novels, mm -hmm. uh, not his pamphlets. Those are actually a little bit difficult to get a hold of in English unless you buy them from a Nazi press. Uh, mm -hmm. you, can, you, can, you can get them online, uh, usually also from fascist websites, but if you want a hard copy, you usually have to buy it from some Nazi piece of shit. Uh, but the books, the novels were made available and were widely admired. Uh, particularly in literary circles. He, he kind of became a writer's writer, right? So uh, I mentioned Kurt Vonnegut, uh, who was a major fan of Celine and wrote uh, a, one of the introductions to one of the, again, cheap paperback copies of one of his novels, in this case, North. Uh, he doesn't deny that, uh, that Celine was a anti-Semite, but he kind of glosses over it. Uh, Henry Miller was an admirer. Uh, Philip Roth, uh, you know, who uh, was Jewish, in case you missed it, uh, was a pretty big admirer of Celine's. Uh, the Beat writers borrowed some from him as well. Uh, he, he was very influential in English and in French. Uh, and he, had, he has this uh, continued afterlife, I think, both uh, for the quality of his prose and his role in the development of literary modernism and uh, and for uh, the transgressive element of what I, I think, let me put it this way. I think if Celine never said anything anti-Semitic, maybe he would still be in a similar position because his work was so good that people would, uh, people would still read it. Maybe somewhat more people would read it because they wouldn't reflexively be, maybe more people would be willing to assign it in schools or what have you. Uh, but I, I kind of think there is part of the attraction to Celine is the transgressive element, both in his prose, uh, the way he pushed the envelope in his writing, and what he actually did, right? His uh, flirtation, at least with fascism and collaboration, and his rank anti-Semitism. Uh, so, you know, Drew and I, I mean, we're both historians and we're both, uh, to a certain extent, literary people. I have put more 
uh, a little bit more probably on more chips on literature and literary criticism, which probably has something to do with why Drew has an actual job in history uh, and I don't. Um, there's many reasons, many reasons there. Uh, but we're, we're kind Stru of looking structural at reasons mainly structural. Yes. Love structure uh, that uh, we're, we're both coming out. We're, we're much like Celine and Hindus. Our trains are running on parallel tracks, but we're, we're in, you know, cooperation with each other. Uh, unless you could uh, notice, you know, the undertone of uh, menacing hatred for each other in this podcast. <laughs> uh, yes. That's, that's the surprise. That's the big reveal at the end is that. Yeah. Yeah. We've been psychologically torturing each other. This it's true. And, and we're not even that ethnically dissimilar. No, uh, no it's, we'll have to come up with post facto justifications. For yes. Why destroy each other later. But yeah, yeah, it'll be good. Um, but Drew, why don't you talk about how this relates to kind of your historical project? Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned that I stumbled across Hindus by chance because I was working in an archive. I realized that his story connected with an area that I really do do uh, research in and, and, and work in professionally, which is this sort of early post-war period in Europe, um, early post-war 1945 to sometime in the 50s, you know, early Cold War era, um, relations between France and Germany, the early origins of the European Unity Project and how people talk about European civilization and all that. So I found lots of like angles that I found interesting. Also, Shortly after I started working with the Hindus papers, um, the archives at Brandeis got a call from a French film director um, who was interested in making a Hindus and Celine film. Um, so I ended up actually getting my first uh, of two film credits mm. <laughs> from uh, as, as a historical consultant because I was the person who knew the Hindus papers the best. Um, and, uh, and it generated a couple of papers and things like that, but, um, you know, what's really fascinating about Kindis and Celine to me is there are a couple of things as a historian. One of them, so um, I'm, uh, I guess, what you call a new cultural historian in the American uh, sense that I'm mm -hmm. interested in sort of lived culture. I'm interested in people's meaning making structures. Um, it's all very kind of cultural anthropology colored. Um, and uh, uh, I'm interested in the history of that, the history of, and in French, in, in, in the French Academy, there's something called history of mentalities. Mm -hmm. um, history of mentalities is kind of an outgrowth of the old Annals sort of school of social history um, in the early to mid 20th century. Um, and, and it's kind of related to micro history, the history of sort of very small groups of people, small villages, families, as a way of looking at larger questions, particularly in culture. Um, so, you know, people like Mark Block are associated with this, but also Robert Darton and Mark Block, um, it's worth noting a resistance fighter, uh, a Jew himself, though, a very assimilated uh, French Jew. Right. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. And who was tor who was caught, tortured and executed uh, by the Gestapo. Um, not that uh, Celine would give a shit about that. No, <laughs> no. But so, yeah, but but this this school of social history takes off, certainly a little before World War II, but it's really strong after too. 
Um, and sort of what the historians of mentality were interested in, Bloch was a medievalist, so he was interested in how did people think in the Middle Ages? And I don't just mean like monks, right? Because if you know any medievalists, that's mostly the sources they have are things that monks wrote because mm. monks wrote a lot. So the new tools of social history to try to get inside of, of how people made meaning out of the world. Um, and and microhistory is a great approach to that. In a way, the Hindus and Selene story is a microhistory, which touches mm. on huge questions, global questions, certainly transatlantic questions, mm -hmm. questions of how America as it's coming into itself as, as, as a superpower um, is, and how Americans are seeing Europe, particularly an educated, very educated, very bright uh, American like Hindus, who's fascinated by literature and civilization and culture. He wants to go, he's almost like an archeologist going to try to save whatever little scraps of pre-war mm. literary life is left in Europe, whether it be Yiddish literature or French or German or Norwegian, right? And um, so, so this story, it's 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 a lot of stories in one. It's a story about, and he encounters this European, uh, this very bigoted European who's very talented, also who has a sort of dirty, if dirtily brilliant mind, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but one that he really doesn't quite understand, or he try, he he feels he needs to study at close uh, closer quarters. Um, it's a story about these two men and, and their evolving perspectives. I mean, Hindus has this very interesting, he's, he's, he's sort of fixed among uh, the stars of this kind of uh, post-war literary intellectual scene in the United States, um, which is interested in modernism and things like this. He's fixed in the history of American uh, Judaism and American Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, as a, a person who's moving away from political radicalism and toward eventually a kind of, uh, I guess you'd say he was a fellow traveler of the Zionists, but really mm -hmm. an American nationalist. He really mm -hmm. becomes a patriot and his mm -hmm. patriotism is renewed by um, a sort of turn toward what he calls a sort of um, more modest loyalties, he says, mm -hmm. um, and away from this sort of broader vision. In a way, his encounter with Europe and with the strangeness of this European prejudice um, is part of the story of of him sort of uh, being humbled by the world, you know, mm. and its size. And, and it, you know, it has a lot of human interest, this story, too. And meanwhile, you have um, Celine, who's going through a huge transition of his own, where he's going from, you know, a regime, a collaborationist regime, where he was, you know, Laval, the on and off prime minister of Vichy France, his personal secretary, or not secretary, personal doctor, doctor yeah. um, to, to, to being uh, in exile, to being back, to, you know, going through all the vagaries of the post-war and the, and the purge of collaborators in France and, and figuring out where he's going to fit in, this, this mm -hmm. sort of pre-war figure in a post-war world. Um, so, but I think, um, I think a small story like this about two people can help us to get into mentalities in a way that looking at a larger aggregate often can't, um, and just see how hard it is to study mentalities because how much about these people is uniquely them, is their mm. sweet generis, and how much of it is, is representative, right? That's what we always ask in cultural history. Well, is this representative of something mm. bigger? Um, I don't know. Um, but uh, I, th I think yes and no, right? Uh, but I think there's also danger in trying to study mentalities um, in history. Uh, there's another field called psychohistory, which is sort of related to this. It's formally linked theoretically to psychoanalysis. It's basically the attempt to psychoanalyze people in the past. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's some been some great psycho uh, psychohistorical biographies, um, and I wouldn't throw it out with the bath, bath water altogether. But I do think when you psychologize um, the Hindus-Selene relationship, which is very tempting to do and yeah. very interesting, and I think th there's a lot to poke at there in terms of, you know, like you said, maybe Selene would have seen Hindus as a masochist. Mm -hmm. Hindus would have seen Selene as maybe like maybe it's all a big joke. Like they're kind of trying to analyze each other too. Mm. Um, but I think as scholar, as a scholar, um, I think there has been a tendency, a lot of people want to try to try to like root around in both Hindus and Selene's minds. And I think there, 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 there are limits uh, to that. Um, I think that um, we want to be aware of all the different motivations people have for doing anything. Um, and I think uh, like one of the limitations of that is I think that in trying to understand, well, why would Hindus submit himself to this? Uh, you end up focusing too much on sort of Hindus and not enough on what Hindus wanted to draw our attention to, which is everything that had just happened in Europe, the things that Celine had been complicit in. Right? Mm -hmm. If we turn this into a story about a psychodrama between two men, Right. We lose the positive side of, of micro history, which is that it reflects on something bigger. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I see that kind of historiographical thinking as actually being very valuable for criticism, because that is the other side of it. To the extent that criticism approaches history at all, it's either uh, uh you know, maybe not psychoanalytic exactly, but the kind of something like psychohistory, like you're talking about, that doesn't take on board uh the larger forces at play or what you get sometimes where it just turns into well this writer uh or this figure is just a stand-in for this given ideology or this given movement uh and, and we just kind of lay them out that way and and judge them on that basis entirely you know there's a lot of bad ways to do history there's a lot of bad ways to do criticism uh i think that the encounter between Hindus and Selene is uh, interesting and productive in the way uh, that you say it is. I think that uh, this question of the transgressive has interested me for a while. Those of you who read my newsletter, which is if you want to get uh, this podcast in your, in your email, which I don't know how many people want that compared to just getting it on their podcatcher, but uh, you can subscribe. The point is you can subscribe to my newsletter. There's more content there along with getting emailed podcasts. Uh, and one of those things was my latest birthday lecture, uh, which talked about transgression uh, in the place of transgression and edginess and specifically Gen X and late 20th century American culture. So I've been thinking about that a fair amount. You know, what does transgression do? Uh, what is what what work does it accomplish for those who write it or for those who read it? Uh, where does transgression end, and where, or rather, where does uh, when is transgression innovative? When is it transgression for its own sake? Is that even a distinction that's worth making? Uh, all these things interest me. Uh, I'm not ready to either declare myself, you know, full bore in favor of literary transgression, which usually also turns into not criticizing anyone uh, who does anything in the transgressive field. Because as Celine would point out, a lot of this stuff just turns into gang 
you know, uh, uh, fighting for your gang, right? So if you identify with, you know, edgy writers or edgy culture, then you can't criticize anything in it. And you can always point to how the people who hate that stuff, the more moralistic types, will also uh, will also condemn all of it outright. Right. You just turn into Matt Taibbi on the Bill Maher show. Yeah, you could turn into Matt Taibbi, <laughs> or you can turn into you know the the Twitter the Twitter people who you know probably helped contribute to Matt Taibbi going mad. Uh, or <laughs> I, I don't know if he's actually mad. I, I do think that there's more calculation in what he's done than madness. But the kind of pe- the kind of people who provide those people an alibi. I think, uh, I think not to d- d- draw this out, but I think I think when when I say on uh, you know Bill Maher is a person who's always been you know he's 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 the liberal comedian who's provocative right, right. that is that his his thing and and you know when when Taibbi or somebody like him will go on on that show what they're really doing is they're they're just sort of feeding off of each other's sort of yeah. sense of outrage at everybody trying to shut them down right and <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's that that's that feedback loop of <laughs> and they start defending their team even right. though actually their views are very different from each other yeah. as well. <laughs> and you have and you have to figure, you know, down the line, people are going to look at these conflicts and think, well, what did all this have to do with like, you know, uh, with, with whether trans people deserve to exist mm-hmm. uh, or or with the fucking broiling climate? Uh, <laughs> and, and the thing is, it has a lot to do with both of these things, but it won't necessarily be obvious to people in the future. So I do think it's good to excavate these structures uh, and you and you can see them in the past as well. Um, anyway, I think we've probably uh, talked enough. Uh, like I said, I do recommend uh, the work of Louis Ferdinand Celine, uh, especially his novels, which the anti-Semitism doesn't come up that much, and certainly not more than all kinds of bigoted stuff that you get from many writers of many t- times and places. Uh, and it's fast, it's funny, it's affecting, it's really good. Uh, I I don't know if I can recommend Milton Hindis that easily if you don't already know about Celine, more probably than this podcast could provide you with, but I thought it was fine, uh, Cripple Giant. I haven't read any of his other stuff. Well, I think I think Hindus in a way, and this this maybe will be my last point, is just, you know, Hindus in a way in the Cripple Giant kind of makes... Uh, and, and once again, I'm not going to attribute intention that this is necessarily what he set out to do. But in a way, by saying that Celine is that sort of ordinary anti-Semite who made mm-hmm. Hitler and the Holocaust possible, right. even without being the Nazi flavor of anti-Semite, which I yes. think is largely correct, if a little bit kind to Celine, mm-hmm. um, if if in doing so, he actually makes an incredibly strong case for why Celine's read, uh, work is so important to read as a historian. Right. Yeah. Because he he's really as Hindus is a strong believer in in this uh, sort of uh, ideal space of of ideas and culture that needs to be sort of studied and understood and preserved. Right. And as as a sort of access point to a kind of collective unconscious. And so he would say that's what that's what that's what Celine's good for. Right. Uh, and it's very good for that. And so, and I think, I think maybe he's got a point about that, but, but you can feel yeah. complicated about reading Celine that I do at the same time. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, I guess what I would say is we should embrace 
the complication. We should embrace the discomfort. It's not necessarily the same as saying, oh, you should ignore your discomfort. If you're too uncomfortable, then no, you shouldn't read a given thing. Uh, you know, if, if you're doing it for recreation, certainly. Um, I would also say, but I would say to try to challenge yourself. I mean, that's kind of part of this podcast project. Uh, so yeah, challenge yourself uh, along multiple different lines in your reading, and it will be uh, better than just kind of going along. Uh, thank you, Drew, for uh, coming on to Reading in the Time of Monsters, and uh, we'll uh, see you soon. Thanks a lot, Peter. All right. Bye-bye.